pray with me. Our God and Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that you would speak to us through it, that we may see you more clearly and ourselves more clearly. Be with all of us sinners as we hear your word proclaimed. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we, this summer, are preaching through a set of psalms. This book of psalms is the, was the hymn book of ancient Israel, and these songs together represent the breadth of what Israel was called to join in worship to the Lord for. And as I reflected on this psalm that we heard this morning, I was reflecting that there are, I think, some simple truths in Christianity. Simple truths that are, on the one hand, so basic that they all sound familiar, and on the other hand, so against the way of the world that almost none of us fully believe them. Things that we all sort of know if we've spent time in the Bible, but that we easily forget. And one of those simple truths in Scripture is this. It's that the way up is the way down. In Christianity, the way up is the way down. That, for example, is how the Bible views our relationships to other people. The disciples get in an argument about which one of them is the greatest and the most exalted. And Jesus points out that they're thinking in worldly terms. And instead he says this. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. In Jesus' kingdom, he's saying the ones who are the least important are the most important. The ones who lower themselves the most are the most highly exalted. That's true of how we view ourselves with God in Scripture, too. Over and over, it speaks against pride, but speaks about against pride in this particular way. It says, for example, in the book of James, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That you lower yourself in humility before him, and somehow you will be exalted. Or again, the way up is the way down. I was thinking about that this morning because in many ways it perfectly mirrors the structure of this psalm. This psalm speaks to us these deep truths about how we relate to God. And so what I want us to do this morning is just spend some time reflecting on it in light of that simple truth. Reflecting on our humility as this psalm shows it to us and then our significance. Our humility and our significance. The psalm starts with the declaration of our humility, or in other words, it starts with the declaration of God's greatness and glory in relation to us. So start in verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So God's name is majestic in all the earth, which is reflecting just this reality we see that creation itself somehow speaks God's praise. Not that everything is perfect, not that everything is as it should be, not that every person recognizes God, but that just when we look at the world, we have to recognize his power and his might and his greatness. In verse 2 then, David gives a specific example of this. He says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And people debate what exactly David's talking about, but the general idea is this. It's that God shows his power by working through what is humble to overcome the mightiest forces in the world. 
um, that's hinting at something that's going to come later, but it's just, again, emphasizing God's majesty and might, that the world would come with, with chariots and tanks and war horses, and that God, with an infant, could simply destroy those armies. And then verse 3, one more example. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, we look up at the sky and we see this whole universe, stars burning thousands of light years away and, you know, scattered across the night sky like my kids scatter toys around the house, right? Just the scope and the scale of this thing. Um, and it says that these are the works of God's fingers, right? They're just like the, the, the pieces of pottery that he made to show off. That supernova and nebulas are like, like the Etsy crafts or whatever of God, right? And that a God who, who has so much power then um, is shining that forth in the heavens, and all of that's leading David to a point. But before we get there, I just want to double down on like, that is really true. I think we need to appreciate the reality of God's greatness displayed in creation. Because I think that we have this tendency when we relate to the world to kind of like think we've like named something, maybe we know a fact or two about it, and so then we sort of take it for granted or diminish its glory. So you just like he talks about the heavens, right? And you think about the sun. You know, I mean, the sun that, that hangs in the sky. Um, I mean, you know, it's this kind of thing that we just look at and like my kids draw these little portraits of it with a smiley face on it. But when you think about what it actually is, I mean, it's, it's the size of 300,000 earths. And it's massive and it burns just at the edges at 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Like we would just evaporate if we were anywhere near this thing. Um, and it burns that way because it's essentially a gigantic hydrogen bomb that has been exploding for billions of years. And, you know, I mean, and, and can explode for billions more. And inside of it, it is smelting hydrogen and helium into like gold and iron. And I'm a huge nerd and I could go on and on about that. But you... You think about what that thing is, right? And the fact that, I mean, our, our whole planet and all of our grandeur, if we were just a little closer to it, would be consumed. I was thinking about, I mean, you don't even need the sky. I was thinking about that same reality of just that bigness and our smallness. A few weeks ago, we were in Florida with my in-laws and sitting out by the ocean. Um, again, because I'm a huge nerd, I googled this, but um, the ocean is more than a billion cubic kilometers, all right? That's, that's the volume of the ocean. And all of the human beings in the world, if you piled them all in a heap, are 0.5 cubic kilometers, which is to say that all of us, if we all, 8 billion of us, walked into the ocean at once, it would not even measurably affect the level of the sea. That's the scope of this world that we live in, and the psalmist is saying, God made all of that. He made it and it didn't even take that much effort. It was just a thought in his mind, just a word that he spoke, and this world came into being. And the point of that then in the psalm is to remind us that next to that, we are not nearly as big as we like to think. That's the question David asks in verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And those are rhetorical questions, right? What he's trying to say is that, like, in ourselves, um, we are nothing on that scale. Now, of course, there's a hopeful kind of turn in a minute. But again, we need to appreciate that reality. That, um, that in ourselves, there is nothing that demands God's care or impresses him 
I, I think in modern America, um, we, we don't like to think that way because we're constantly about affirming um, ourselves and each other. I just, you know, I log on to Facebook in my daily checking of the Facebook and, you know, and I'm going to see like a half dozen different little, you know, p- pictures with, you know, with fancy words about how important and great I am. And those things are helpful from a human perspective, but they can lead us to think a certain way about how we stand in relation to God. We think that, um, that God must really be impressed by us, that we must really be necessary to him. I think it creeps sometimes into our worship songs and inspirational books, this reasoning where we say God loves us, which is, yes, that, that part is true, and we'll get there in a minute, but God loves us, therefore, we are so lovable and lovely and important to him. And what the psalmist is saying in scripture is that in ourselves, that is not the reality of the world that we live in. Maybe, maybe if I could illustrate it graphically, this is the basic fact of the universe as scripture portrays it. We think about the universe like this. We're like, there's mosquitoes, and then there's God, right, on the spectrum, and we're like, you know, like right in the middle, or maybe erring towards the God side of that spectrum, right? But that in, in, in the actual view of the universe, the reality is like, there's the mosquito, and there's us, and then like infinitely far down this line, blowing up the end of it by comparison, is God, right? Some, somewhere off in, you know, in the moon somewhere, if, you know, in that spectrum is, is him in relation to us. There's this moment where John the Baptist is preaching in the Gospels, and he's talking to the Pharisees who think they're so important because of their pedigree and their religious observance and how great they are. Um, and John says this to them. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And that is not hyperbole. He's telling them an actual theological fact that that we could all um, turn against God and disappear and that God could simply speak and turn the rocks into more people like us. That is God as scripture portrays him. And that's not something that you can just walk away from if you're going to understand the Bible. I think that it's popular in our world to treat God kind of like this buffet or like this consumer satisfaction survey where we pick the parts that kind of, you know, are uplifting and encouraging. Um, But then those harder kind of realities we like to skip over. But that is the reality of God as we're dealing with him, if he's God. He is infinitely great and worthy and powerful. And next to that, we are as nothing. And that should teach us humility. That's why we said, you know, this is the first kind of side of this psalm. It reminds us of our humility. Like humility, when we say that word, isn't about pretending like you're worse than you are, right? That's in the Midwest, that's kind of what we define humility as, I think. It's like someone says, great job. And you know you did a great job, but you say, oh no, it was terrible. And we think that that's being humble. But humility in scripture is instead about um, having a proper sense of our place in the universe of just recognizing the reality of what we are, and in particular, recognizing the reality of what we are in relation to God, that we're much smaller than we like to pretend. So that's one side of this psalm, right? Remember, the way up is the way down, and that's the down part. Um, But that's only half of it, because while it starts with our humility, the psalm then shifts in verse 5 to wonder at our significance. So if you start in verse 5, it says, Yet you have made him, meaning humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. 
So David has just invited us to ask, who are we? What are we? And in ourselves, we're nothing. But then he says, but you have made him. God has somehow put us, in spite of that fact, in this place of glory and honor. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, he says. Um, That phrase might mean angels, but the Hebrew word is actually just Elohim, which just means God or gods, right? It's like, you know, he's placed us just below himself somehow in the universe. And crowned us with glory and honor. Which again, the emphasis is on God doing it. It's not that we have those things in ourselves, but that God chooses to reflect his glory and honor onto us and give us a place of significance. And on top of that, God gives us a real power in the midst of creation. Verse 6 says, You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So you've given him dominion. And then verses 7 and 8 go on and list all these different things that that he's given dominion over. And that's an echo of the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. If you've been with us in adult ed a couple weeks ago, this is going to sound familiar to, to us. But God creates human beings and then it says in Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I don't know if you've ever heard the Bible says that we're created in the image of God. Um, That's how Genesis 1 puts it. But these verses are actually explaining what that means. Being made in God's image doesn't just mean that like we look like God or something, certainly, or that we're smart like God. Rather, it means that we are a picture of God to the rest of creation. That God gives us a position of authority um, and dominion in, within creation so that we are, in a sense, his, his ambassadors, his regents, his, I mean, his lieutenants in the world. And so that means that we have this real significance in the context of creation. We have this, you know, this power, um, um, and that's part of it. Um, But we also have this purpose, and we really need those two things together if we're going to understand what the psalm is saying. On the one hand, we have immense power in the world. And that's just true. That's not, I mean, that's true just by being a human being in the earth, that we have an immense power over each other, and we have an immense power over the rest of creation. I mean, like, some of y'all are farmers, right? And you understand that in a very, like, real way, that there's a set of things you can do that can make the earth flourish and be fruitful, and there's another set of things you can do, probably an easier set of things that will make it go, you know, go fallow and not be able to support any crops, Um, that you can do that just by behaving in those ways. And all of us can do that. We build cities, and we tame animals, right? I mean, you know, dogs don't keep humans as pets. We, um, We, in a literal sense, have the ability in the modern world to to blow up the planet. Um, and we, you know, we cause species to, do, to go extinct. And we don't have to work at any of that. We have that power. So that's part of that dominion. But that reminds us that the power that we have in itself isn't necessarily a good thing, right? While God gives it to us with, um, with a good purpose, we often use that power to damage each other, to damage creation, to use the things that God has made for our own selfish ambitions. And that's what's changed between God's original creation and now is how we're using that power. I think a lot of times we have this idea when we read the Bible that when, when the fall happens in Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve sin and, you know, and things fall apart, that somehow the world has changed and we're basically the same. We have this notion that like creation is all messed up but we're kind of similar. 
um, to Adam and Eve before that moment. But in the biblical view, actually, we're basically the thing that's changed. Certain things because of that about the world have changed. But what happened is, as we rebelled against God in sin, then creation was broken because now our power wasn't being used for its good, but rather for evil. And that reminds us that in the biblical view, when we talk about our significance, we're not just talking about power, but also about purpose. Um, our power is supposed to be joined with God's purpose in the world. One of the things, that, if you look at these verses, is that our position in creation is not what we deserve, like we said, but is a gift of God. That God has placed us in this position unexpectedly, in a place just below the heavenly beings. God crowned us with glory and honor, not because we're glorious, but because he is gracious. And that's why the psalm begins and ends with this call for us um, to worship God's majesty. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Which is to say that the power and significance we have as creatures is meant to exist within a context of a purpose of serving and glorifying God. So we need to appreciate our power. That is actually an important thing for us, I think, at times. Sometimes Christians deny this place that God has given us in the world, and so I think that kind of makes us like, like a professional wrestler who's in denial about the fact that he's like 300 pounds of muscle, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you, if you don't recognize that power and you go to shake somebody's hand or you, you, know, you go walking around in, you know, in a shop, you're going you're to cause a lot of destruction. But mostly I think what we need is to place our power within the proper sense of purpose. Or to put it another way, which is the big idea that all of this is leading to this morning, that we find our true significance by humbling ourselves before God. We find our true significance by humbling ourselves before God. There are a lot of people in our world that feel dissatisfied with their lives. Maybe that's you, maybe that's not. And I think one of the reasons people can struggle with that dissatisfaction is that they're living for something that is insignificant. They're living for something that is not significant enough. You can see that the best in the, in the really shallow things, right? Someone who's just living for comfort or pleasure. Um, that, that yes, there's a sense in which maybe they're, they're kind of comfortable or happy for a season, but inevitably you recognize that they feel unfulfilled and discontented and somehow shrunk as people. And the reason for that is that just being comfortable is such a small ambition, right, that, that your life kind of shrinks down in smallness to meet it, and so you end up feeling unfulfilled. A lot of us, though, maybe recognize that, and so what we try to do is find some source of significance beyond just ourselves, and that's better, it's closer to the truth, but it still has problems. Um, you know, you give yourself to some big idea or cause, which some people do, or you just give yourself to others. Um, I mean, many of us do it with our families or our communities, right? You know, we, we make that thing the source of our significance and identity. And again, that's better than just the selfish thing, but it still has problems. One of those problems is that, um, is that those things... <coughs> um, when they're not working, that can destroy what sense of significance we have, right? When you give yourself to that thing and it fails, what do you have left? If your life is all about seeing this cause, right, whether it's curing malaria or having your kids grow up right, if that's the thing that you're living for and that thing doesn't work out, um, what do you do, right? You're left with that same kind of shrinking sense of self. And more than that, um, tying ourselves up in that kind of thing can actually also make us mean, 
I don't know if you've ever <laughs> noticed that, but, um, but like if you're all about some cause, what you start to do is view other causes, other good causes, as enemies, right? You know, it's like, well, why, why are they getting, you know, the money? Why aren't they giving it to me? Um, if you make your life all about your, your family, there's this thing that often happens where what you start to do is tear down other families, especially the ones that seem to be doing better than you. And all of that's happening because while it's good that those things are bigger than just our selfish ambitions, they're still not big enough to give us a full, the full sense of significance that we feel like we need. Um, they're good things, but they can't define our whole purpose for life. The only thing big enough to build our whole lives on, the scriptures would proclaim, and I really believe the only thing great enough for us to give our full selves to is something as big as God. He is, within him we find something large enough and all-encompassing enough that we can invest ourselves of it with hope um, and without getting mean. And here's what's remarkable about that. As you do that, you actually find all those other things we mentioned, they have their place, right? I mean, each of us, according to our gifts and abilities, as we seek to live and seek that glory of God, are going to pursue certain causes. They're going to seek to, you know, to love our communities and families and things. Those things are there, but they all find their place within that greater purpose. And that means that when they're unsteady, that greater purpose still remains. I remember talking to a friend a couple years ago um, who was a pastor, and he took this, this very hard pastoral calling, helping with this church plant that was underway. And I'm, I, a church plant is when you start a new church, you know, some people go out and seek to, you know, begin a new church somewhere. And from before he took the job, I remember talking to him, he's just like, this is kind of a disaster, right? He looks at this and recognizes that there's all these issues, but he has this real sense that he's called to dive into it anyway and give himself to it. And so he does. And I mean, he, for years, right, you know, worked at this thing. And the Lord blessed that in some ways. And there were some good fruits of his work. Um, but all of those issues were still there. And they never got better. And in the end, the church plan ended up failing because of that. And I remember talking to him um, after that. And, um, and I don't remember his exact words because it was the idea that stuck with me. But what he said was something like this. Um, I asked him how he was handling that, how he was feeling about all of that. And he said, it is hard and it is sad, but I am just glad that I serve Jesus's kingdom, not this church. And Jesus's kingdom is doing just fine. You see how that worked, right? This, there was this thing that my friend was doing, but that wasn't where his significance lay. His hope was in God and glorifying him and his mission. And when he was doing this thing with this church plant, right, that was, you know, that was seeking to do that. But even though it failed, his, his sense of purpose in life hadn't changed. He was still on the same mission. The, the specifics had just changed. And so I'd invite us as we reflect on that to just ask, is that how we are experiencing life? Um, whether you're, are you investing your significance in God and his mission or are you choosing some specific thing and just living for that? Because you see the pattern there, right? It's the pattern we said at the beginning, that the way up is the way down. The more we humble ourselves, the more we have a sense of God's great glory, and it shrinks us, the more significant living our lives for him actually becomes. Um, the more we, we make our lives about seeking that glory, the greater the thing that we're pursuing actually is. As we close, um, I just couldn't help reflecting very personally about how, how true that principle is. Um, I have found it especially true in this last season that our family has found ourselves in. 
Um, I don't always reflect on these things, and I know we have some visitors, but um, my wife Elizabeth has terminal cancer, and we have been walking through that in this season, and, um, and maybe God will heal her, but he very well might not, and that's something that we spend a lot of time reflecting on. Um, and I'm not about to tell you that the stuff we just said in this sermon somehow takes away the hardness of that, right? Don't hear me saying that. It's still painful, and there's still moments of anger and fear, but um, the truth that we have both realized in this season is this. Um, it's that because God has worked in us in a variety of ways, in a way that has given us ultimately a sense that our lives are about his glory, that that is what we desire, imperfectly, but, but really, we have hope regardless of what happens. Because look, if my life was all about my wife, as much as it's tempting to be because she's wonderful, but it, it, I would be in a world of trouble if that's the, the ultimate thing that I'm living for in this moment. Um, if our lives were ultimately about our children, who we love, that, you know, that would put us in a world of trouble still because they're going to suffer heartbreak and wounds from this. Um, but because our hope is ultimately in Jesus and in his work and his glory— then even though some of those parts of our world feel like we're, they're falling apart, one of the things we've both spent a lot of time just realizing and feeling blessed by is that our sense of purpose is still the same. That we're still living for the same ultimate things that the Lord worked and called us to live in before. I remember hearing someone say something like this. Um, I don't know where it's from, but just someone commenting that life will try to crush you at some point, right? It's going to weigh down on your shoulders. And the question is not whether you can avoid that, but whether you have a sense that what you're doing with in life is significant enough to help you to bear up under it. I think that's really the question at some point that's going to confront all of us. And God provides the ultimate purpose and significance that we can find in those moments. Not that he takes away the pain of it, but that we can recognize as we recognize his glory and goodness that we are serving something that is worth it and that helps us to bear up under it. By seeking to lower ourselves to his purpose, to humble ourselves and seek his glory, there is a joy and significance that nothing in this world can change. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I am often full of pretense, thinking more of myself than I should, but I am humbled by your glory and greatness. You are good and kind and give us calling and purpose in this world, and I pray that we might seek in that um, to glorify you and to find in that fulfillment of our heart's deepest longings. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me now and sing God's praises? Do you guys need this?
God of wonders beyond our galaxy. You are holy, holy. The universe declares your majesty. You are holy, holy. God of wonders beyond our galaxy.
It is good to worship with all of you this morning, especially good and beautiful to hear children sing the praises of our Lord um, at the beginning of the service. Please join us for fellowship time afterwards. If you're a visitor um, and I've never gotten a chance to meet you, I'd love to, to introduce myself, make sure to say hello, and also make sure to say hello to the people standing next to you, whether you're a visitor or not, especially if you're not, in fact, a visitor, you should say hello. Um, and go now with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace now and always. Amen.